Welcome back, listeners, for the fifth episode of Circulating Spaces, Literary and Language Worlds in a Global Age, a podcast dedicated to exploring what it means to engage with literature as a global community. I'm Christian Howard. And I'm Samantha Wallace. Circulating Spaces is an experiment coming out of the University of Virginia and the Public Humanities Lab, generously funded by the Institute of the Humanities and Global Cultures. And uh, just another plug for subscription. You can finally do that for us via iTunes. Nice work, Christian. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we should have that up um, on the website. And like, like Sam said, you can also visit iTunes for that. Yeah. It's great. Searchable. It's really happening. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So today we're very excited to talk with Brandon Butler, the first director of information policy at the University of Virginia Library. <laughs> Brandon weighs in on campus uh, around issues of intellectual property and related issues and advocates on the library's behalf at the federal, state, local, and campus levels. And on top of all this, he's the author and co-author of a range of published materials on copyright, um, specific focus on libraries and fair use doctrine. We're definitely going to talk about that today. Um, before coming back to UVA, Brandon taught copyright and supervised student attorneys in the IP Law Clinic at American University up in D.C., and advocated for research libraries around the country at the Association of Research Libraries. So we're really excited to have you on today, Brandon. Thanks so much. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, awesome. Uh, and you and I actually met um, through the open access community on campus, at UVA's campus. Um, I was lucky enough to go on behalf of the library to uh, OpenCon last November in Berlin. That was, that was yes. excellent. Um, we were thrilled to send you there. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun, and we were thrilled to hear about how well it went for you. So Really, yeah. Really excellent experience, hopefully, uh, for other students in the future, an experience that for sure. will come up again. Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, so, Brandon, what does it mean to be the library's director of information policy at UVA? It's such a good question. It, it, <laughs> it means that the job title that they had before didn't seem right to me, so I made one up. Mm, um, okay. There was a the, the the previous job posting was um, legal issues librarian, huh. and I didn't go to library school, so I didn't feel like I should call myself a librarian. And I felt like if I'm lucky, I can worm my way past <laughs> the law and into policy. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to. It was a land grab, really, on my part. So what you're saying um, is that your title is a technicality. That your first being the first is is a technicality. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, right. Of course, I'm the first one because no one had made up the title until I made it up. Right. But nobody did whatever this job is either. So before me, um, there was someone in the general counsel's office who spent a lot of time giving legal advice to the library. Um, and in some sense, I am here to, to take over where that left off. But her mandate was confined to legal stuff. And, and while I do mostly legal counsel and information, again, I'm interested in the bigger policy questions that come out of mm-hmm. that too, you know, the kind of open access stuff that mm-hmm. we can talk about, as well as the strictly, you know, what is, what's okay under copyright law and, mm-hmm. and so on. Awesome. So for those of us who are non-initiates, can you give us a sort of example of questions that are policy-related versus law-related? You're making that distinction between yeah. law and policy. So absolutely. Like? So I get questions. So a typical legal question that I get is, you know, a faculty member will write to me and and, and send me their publishing contract and say, mm-hmm. is this a good contract? Gotcha. Right. What am I agreeing to if I sign this contract? And of course, I'm not their lawyer. If I was, I'd send them a bill. 
but I can I can help them understand the terms in the contract. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of legal education. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the policy front, for example, uh, one thing that I'm doing is working with our new dean of libraries, John Unsworth, on a kind of long-term strategy to make sure that we are making decisions about the big journal packages that the library buys, Mm -hmm. the Elseviers and the Wileys and the Sage, you know, these huge multi-million dollar packages. Um, We want to make policy around the library that uh, helps the campus better understand what those packages look like and how much they cost and the trade-offs that are involved in getting committed to those packages. And on the other hand, also, uh, we want to hear from campus, uh, you know, especially faculty, grad students, the people who really depend on um, our resources. How valuable is this stuff to you? Mm-hmm. For for a long time, we've been mm-hmm. spending millions on things on the assumption that these things are useful, and it's getting to the breaking point. So that's not a legal question, right? I mean, it's it's perfectly legal to continue buying these journals, and it's perfectly sure. legal to stop. But as a policy matter, right. we need to make a decision, and right. I'm trying to make the right one. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So uh, what would you say is uh, your agenda or, that's kind of a loaded word, but is your, that your, uh, agenda? your that's vision? That's my agenda. Maybe. Yeah. So uh, what, what's your vision as the director of information policy? It's much more diplomatic way of saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I'd say my vision is sort of twofold. Um, and in a way, it, it's a way of linking together the law and policy parts. So, Uh, One part of the vision that I have for information policy at UVA is that we can find ways to help more people understand more clearly their rights under the law Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to copyright especially, to use things that are in the library's collections. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is uh, so much fear, uncertainty, and doubt in the campus community about you know, copyright in the yeah. sense that, gosh, if I put an image in my dissertation, I can't put it in Libra or, um, you know, excuse me, if I create a remix video for class, I can't publish that on my website because mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's a kind of education only activity and, and mm-hmm. it's piracy if I let anybody see it. So there's, so there's all that fear about copyright and your rights about things that are already out there. So that's, I think of that as the backward looking problem. I want to solve the backward-looking problem and help people know that the world of culture that's already out there that they're swimming in is actually available to them to make new uses of if they understand their rights. Then there's the forward-looking problem. And my my thinking on the the forward-looking problem, to my mind, is that campus communities in particular, faculty, grad students, and even undergraduate students, anyone who's making sort of knowledge work, I would think, their their interests no longer align with traditional copyright models of distributing their work in most cases. Um, they typically would be very happy for their work to circulate freely and for anyone who wants it to have it and for anyone who needs to use it to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but traditional uh, copyright publishing infrastructure, you know, the people who own big journals, the for-profit companies. The aforementioned Elsevier. Yes, the aforementioned Elsevier and yes. their uh, <laughs> and their many evil twins. Um, 
those guys are operating under a model from the you know uh, post World War II era where we needed them to print things on paper and ship them all over the country in trucks. We don't need that anymore. So a big part of my forward-looking agenda is to help people see how, as authors with copyright rights in the first place, you can use those rights strategically to achieve your goals rather than being sort of sucked into a pre-existing system that doesn't serve your interests anymore. Mm -hmm. Since we're on the topic of copyright, um, could you talk a little bit about intellectual property and copyright specifically in the 21st century? Um, what are some of the major debates and issues? Yeah, I mean, of course... Uh, the biggest debates have to do with digital technology and the internet. Um, and the question of whether and how the law should change to reflect the realities of new technology. And if you talk to uh, major businesses that rely on copyright uh, for their uh, business model, they will tell you that copyright needs to get stronger and longer and more intense because the in the digital age, it is trivially easy to make and share perfect copies, right? Huh. So in 1980, if I'm reading a book and I like it and I want my brother in you know L.A. to read it, it's, there's no easy way for me to say, hey, man, here's the book, right? I guess I can mail it to him and, you know, God bless the Postal Service. But, <laughs> right, in 2018, I can send it to him, right? Yeah. And it's trivially easy for me to do that. So they, they say infringement is really easy, so we need more clubs and sticks um, and guns that we can use against infringers. Um, what the public says is that... Uh, that in an era when it is so easy to share knowledge and information, it is perverse to choke up that system with law. So uh, it is too bad that the old business model of controlling how things circulate and monetizing that is hard now. We should not change technology or use harsh legal penalties to... Um, uh, to continue to prop up that business model, you should find a new business model. Mm -hmm. And the law should actually be more lax. It should allow mm -hmm. more things to, to be shared more widely and more easily. So that's kind of the core. That is the mm -hmm. big defining the debate. Big debate. Uh, it's, it will never be settled, uh, mm -hmm. or no, no time soon, because there are huge moneyed interests on both sides. And mm -hmm. uh, the way Congress works is that uh, it never does anything unless everybody with money thinks it's a good idea. <laughs> Sorry if that's cynical, uh, but All it's also true. Welcome. At least yes, in it's copyright, also true. It, yeah. Yes. I mean, in the copyright context, mm -hmm. you know, so, so, things happen differently in other places. But there's lots of scholarship on how copyright law is made, mm -hmm. and um, the, it, we more or less know how it's made. And it's if if everybody with money doesn't agree, then nothing changes. Yeah, so the, we're the stuck. Mickey Mouse problem, right? Yeah. So we're stuck yeah. where we are right now. You know, the only good news is that there are people with money who agree more or less with libraries now. Mm -hmm. um, so Google and the big technology companies. That's great. To yeah. some extent. To some extent. To some extent. Yeah. And, you know, I've been accused uh, uh, of being sort of a tech ally or too much of a tech shill because, again, their interests align with libraries mm -hmm. sometimes, but certainly not always. Yeah. And so it's not a kind of blind partnership. But sometimes the... the there's a very convenient partnership to be had with folks who are also interested in openness and sharing. Yeah. 
Oh, I was just going to kind of um, pivot from this a little bit. So one of uh, my interests, and I think a, a broader interest of this podcast series, is um, circulating spaces, right? Um, international, transnational mm-hmm. um, circulation, right? So how does copyright law affect the way that um, books or other sources can circulate um, across international boundaries? Yeah, cop- you know, international copyright copyright law is fascinating. Um, the first thing to know is there isn't any such thing as international copyright law. Hmm. There's just a bunch of national laws mm-hmm. yeah. and then treaties between countries where countries agree that they will change their laws in different ways. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no such, you know, if you, no if you lose, UN. exactly, there's yes. no copyright UN. I yeah. mean, there is a, there are UN agencies that deal with intellectual property, mm-hmm. but they don't have formal authority to adjudicate disputes. You know, you can't, if you lose in the Supreme Court, you can't appeal anywhere else. You're yeah. done, right? Um, U.S. law is the law that applies to people in America, Um and German law applies to people in Germany. But the internet makes all that very difficult, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. if I share something online in, in, that's in German, and in fact I know that my audience is a bunch of Germans, uh, even if I'm in Northern Virginia, there's a non-zero chance that a company in Germany is going to try to stop me, right? Mm-hmm. And they might try to drag me into court in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like bleeding edge legal stuff it's not it's not happened a lot we kind of don't know what would happen if that started happening a lot but mm-hmm. it's since the beginning of the internet it's something everybody sort of frets about is how can all these national systems um, coexist um, and so the other thing that's really interesting in terms of the international copyright system that's the phrase that pays in this area <laughs> the international copyright system is the philosophical differences that have separated the U.S. from Europe and the various colonial um, uh, entanglements um, have meant that different post-colonial systems are either sort of Eurocentric or UK, Anglo-American centric. Um, In Europe, the theory of copyright is one based on natural rights and author's rights. So, uh, what European copyright is motivated by and assumes um, is that, you know, the right to control uh, the circulation of copies is a kind of human right that belongs to the author. And the reason that we have copyright is to safeguard that human right of the author. Fair enough. And that shapes the way their law works. Um, In the U.S., on the other hand, we have a utilitarian sort of economic model that says the purpose of copyright is to promote cultural flourishing. It's to promote the greatest possible access to knowledge and the greatest possible creation of new knowledge uh, for a young country, right? And so if you, it's actually in our constitution, um, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, uh, that's my vanity plate. No slouch plate. over here, yeah. <laughs> that's my vanity plate if you see a Honda Insight, right? A1S8C8, that's me. Um, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8 says to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. That is the purpose of copyright and patent um, Mm -hmm. together. So our law is much more interested in the public interest. and And it has safety valves, most importantly fair use, that don't exist almost anywhere else in the way that they exist here. Um, and 
those safety valves also go toward the First Amendment values, which again are somewhat unique um, in our to our system. So we're lucky. We're very lucky. Whenever I interact in international fora, I just sort of thank my stars um, because my friends and allies in other places who are looking out for users always start from a disadvantage because they're seen as, you know, from the very beginning, everything they want to do is like a human rights violation. <laughs> Whereas in our context, there's a much more balanced view. Uh-huh. So so what is the kind of fair use uh clause. Yeah, so uh, fair use doctrine is an extremely important part of the copyright law. Uh, It has existed in Anglo-American law for as long as there has been copyright, Uh, but it has changed dramatically over time. Hmm. So fair use grew out of the common law system, the Anglo-American common law system. Again, this is a big distinction between the U.S. and the U.K. and the uh, European countries. In our system, judges can make law. Uh, And so judges, uh, from the beginning, were seeing that on a case-by-case basis, sometimes it just didn't make sense to enforce copyright. That is, sometimes, at the very beginning, they were called fair abridgments, Mm -hmm. um, or, uh, you know, the the term fair use didn't really come into flower until the middle of the 19th century. Um, But it was always a case-by-case determination made by judges, balancing equitable factors, right, of what seems to be the right thing to do here, Mm -hmm. um, saying, you know, yeah, ordinarily you need someone's permission to make a copy, but this person shouldn't have to ask permission. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, a judge-made law that only existed in the case law and was not written down anywhere until 1978. Um, in 1978, the new Copyright Act of 1976, don't get confused, um, <laughs> it takes a hell of a long time to make a Copyright Act, I'll tell you. They started writing the Copyright Act of 76 in the 1950s. Wow. Um, so they just title it whenever they're done? They stamp, I guess, they yeah, they said, like, this is the title, <laughs> you know, and then they had to give people, like, two years to just to get used to it, to get ready. I don't know. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Um, you know, we've been reviewing the copyright law for the last four or five years and Mm. people keep complaining like, we've been at this for four or five years. When are we going to do something? And and it's like, no, no guys, we're like less than, we're less than 20% done with a typical (laughs) copyright review process. So 1978, they finally put fair use in the statute Mm -hmm. and it's a, but the way they did it was by codifying the four equitable factors that judges typically would weigh together. They'd say, well, there's, I have to think about this, 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 and this, and I think about those four things together in my mind, and I think about the purposes of copyright, and then I decide what's, what's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the Congress said, literally, in the legislative history of the Copyright Act, they said, we don't mean by writing this into the law to stop judges from changing it. <laughs> so, you know, typically you think, you know, like... So then what is the... So what is the point? This is a point? naive question, but yeah, what is the point of Why would you put it, it in there? A statute if you're just going to make it... Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, I think the point was to ensure that you know, after the Copyright Act was completely overhauled, and it was a big change. The previous act was very short and sweet and 
ultimately um, so vague that it was hard to apply. So the 76 Act was huge. Mm -hmm. It's a big law. It's only gotten bigger. Um, and I think part of it was to ensure that fair use would continue to exist. Mm -hmm. You know, a judge might say, gosh, uh, the act was just revised and I don't see any fair use in here. So it was actually libraries who insisted on fair use being in the act to be crystal clear that fair use continues to exist. Mm -hmm. And it was also libraries who insisted that it continue to evolve. Mm. So we want a we want a kind of place marker that says right. fair use is good. Mm -hmm. And think about these four factors that I can get into. Um, but they didn't want to tie the judge's hands. And mm -hmm. that has turned out to be a brilliant strategy mm. because uh, since then judges have really evolved the way they think about fair use in really good ways for the public interest. There was a lot of confusion about how to weigh those four factors and technological change put a lot of pressure on judges huh. as they were trying to figure out, you know, what's fair in the era of the photocopier and what's fair in the era of yeah. dial-up internet. Um, and we've had really smart judges and really smart scholars and, frankly, scholar judges. There is a law review article written by a judge in 1991 that you can pretty much trace everything good in fair use law back to this one article that he wrote when he was a, a, a district court judge. Is it open access? Uh, yeah. Well, is it open access? That's a good question. You know, legal law journal articles are among the weirdest kinds of scholarship. They're typically free to find if you can find them because mm -hmm. law journals are, are created and published by law students. There is no peer review. It's sort of okay. law student uh -huh. review. And so okay. I can tell you as a former, you know, uh, or <laughs> I, I guess I hope I'm still a legal academic, although I don't have as much time to write. You write an article at least with like half an eye toward what would a, what would a third year law student or a second year law student think is cool. Because that's who's <laughs> they're choosing. In of, they're in charge wow. of the journal literature and law. Talk about dysfunction. So, yeah, but this was the Harvard Law Review. So, okay. you know, serious okay. stuff. Right. Mm. Huh. So for, for those of us who are uh, less familiar with open access, could you give us a brief definition and maybe an example or something? Yeah, so open access is, I think, one of the most ingenious developments in copyright law ever, period. Um, so... Open access is, in a way, it's, it's a philosophy, right? It's a theory. Um, uh, Peter Suber is one of the leading advocates, and he and several, um, uh, several sort of leading thinkers about the future of publishing got together uh, and put together a kind of manifesto, mm -hmm. um, the Budapest Open Access uh, Statement um, some years ago. And uh, the, the theory was fairly simple, uh, we now have, and again, it's all about technology, we now have uh, two things in place that make possible something that was never possible before. We have the technology to make all knowledge instantly and, and very, very cheaply, essentially freely available to anyone, anywhere. And we have a community of people, you know, faculty members, professors, who make knowledge for a living and don't expect to get paid by the readers who read it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it is your job as a faculty member to do scholarship. Mm -hmm. You're promoted based on you know how good your scholarship is. Mm -hmm. So that's all the incentive you need. So we can have a publishing system that does not need to pay authors. All we have to do is figure out a way to finance the marginal cost of distributing something on the internet. 
and it's nothing, right? The marginal cost of distributing one more article on the internet is nothing. And so, uh, you know, all they did was sort of put two and two together and say, all scholarly literature should be freely available on the web to anyone with an internet connection. That's the underlying theory. Um, but of course, I mean, by then, and this is, I mean, this, it's been a little while, but it hasn't been that long. Um, all of, all, all of scholarly publishing was very well established. You know, the journals that you want to publish in, in order to get tenure already existed and they were in the hands of, you know, for the, for the Republicans out there, foreign corporations, right? <laughs> um, I've done some lobbying on the Hill and, you know, you change your message a little bit depending on who you're talking to. And one thing that is amazing is American taxpayers are spending billions of dollars every year buying journals from Dutch corporations who have, Elsevier. right? Uh, mm-hmm. Elsevier. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> who run all these journals. Um, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, but they are in place, and there's a huge amount of inertia in the system. So open access is a brilliant idea that there is no rebuttal I've ever heard of to uh, to it as a thing that should be true and widespread. But there is huge inertia in the system that we have to overcome. And yet, and yet, you said earlier that we don't need these 19th century journal systems anymore. Um, and yet we still seem to operate primarily in the academic setting, in in these systems. So can you talk a little bit about why they still function um, in academic settings? Yeah. yeah. The the, the number one reason is, uh, well, the number one reason is inertia. Um, And to dig down on what what kind of inertia, what does that mean? Why is there inertia? Mm -hmm. Um, This gets to something that, again, this is sort of what I was saying. John Unsworth and I are Mm -hmm. really laser-focused on this. Um, You'll be hearing more about it if you live in Charlottesville in the next year or two. Um, People who consume and produce journal literature have no idea the economic model that they're participating in. I mean, it's exactly, exactly like sweatshop labor or any other, you know, sort of um, bad practice in capitalism where, you know, as a consumer, it is behind closed doors and you have Mm -hmm. no idea. And in a way, um, the journal publishing system is like a kind of uh, hellacious offspring of big cable bundles and American health insurance, right? It is a system where the buyer, I mean, these are the two, think about the two things in your life that you hate the most, that we don't understand, you know, the most awful systems that are the most dysfunctional and that no one is happy with. Publishing is both of them at the same time. It is a gigantic bundle that libraries can't refuse. And it looked like a good deal back when we signed up for it and we got, you know, we got CNN and TBS Mm -hmm. for only $20 a month. And now we get a hundred and 50,000 channels that we don't know what they are and they cost, you know, $300 a month, right? Mm -hmm. We have, that is what's happened to libraries and it's like health insurance and you, the patient have no idea where the money goes to, how stuff gets paid for Mm -hmm. every now and then something comes in the mail and you're like, Oh God, this looks like a bill. Is it a bill? Do I have to pay it? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how academics are in the publishing system. They give their work for free to some entity and they get something very valuable in exchange, which is prestige and tenure. 
right? Mm. And the people who convey that prestige are, in a way, the most important people in this whole system. If we could get the sort of senior most people in faculties, the PNT committees, to say, we are going to find a way to measure quality that doesn't rely on established prestige players in the publishing system, mm. I think that could be a game changer. Because that is really what attracts uh, scholars to those journals. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it's so hard. And I, I don't know if you can talk about this, but you mentioned that this is going to be a, a common topic in the coming years at UVA? Yes, so we are embarking upon an effort. Um, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here, except uh, John Unsworth just we published all our slides. <laughs> yeah, the public may never really know. Um, uh, but John just published the slides that we did. So um, uh, we, we did a presentation, John and I. John did the presentation. I helped him write it. Um, to the deans of the, all the schools here at UVA explaining this problem, mm -hmm. uh, especially with respect to the big deals and explaining that, you know, look, we need to know more from you about what you really value and you need to know more from us about what this stuff really costs you. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this, if you really want to get in the weeds, and I apologize for uh, any, you know, people like me who are humanities scholars and uh, majors who get freaked out by finance, but our financial model at UVA just changed, and a lot of universities are on a similar model where something like the library is considered a service, and we bill our services out to the schools, and they have to pay individually for the parts of the library that they use based on our guesstimate of mm -hmm. how much of us cool. they use. I did just fill out a survey to that effect for the English department about what services I use. Interesting. Yep. So mm -hmm. we're trying to figure out what people are using. And what we want to do is sort of take advantage of that feedback loop. You know, it's it's sort of like actually knowing what your insurance company is paying your doctor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it might change the way you think about when you want to publish and where, right? Mm -hmm. So we'll be talking more and more about that in the coming months and certainly years. Can we uh, link out to this published set of slides? Yes, yes. Awesome. John posted it, so awesome. I will get the link to that published uh, place. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and you, I, so we don't forget you are having we're having a fair use fair. Yeah. <laughs> yes, fair use week is fair coming. Fair use week. Um, there's a proliferation of weeks uh, uh, in <laughs> academia. Spring is a busy time. There's a lot of weeks in the spring. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's open access week. There's open education week. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sad and ashamed to admit that Fair Use Week was my idea uh, several years ago <laughs> when I was still at ARL. Cats out of the bag. I know. I'm sorry. Fair use. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it's, you know, like all the other weeks, it is a time when uh, all good people of good conscience uh, around the country try to remember the importance of mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really excited because what we're going to do here at UVA for Fair Use Week is we're going to have a half day of discussions about Remix, mm -hmm. which is, you know, I think a Remix is kind of a throwback in a way. It's like it was really exciting 10 years ago and now people just kind of do it or don't. You know, mm -hmm. it's not... But I'm, I'm curious, so 10 years later, now that it's not the next big thing, how do people do it? Mm -hmm. We have faculty now who teach classes where their students do remix. Like, mm -hmm. it's in the title. Mm -hmm. um, so what does that look like? How do you do a remix? Because mm -hmm. remix, by definition, involves taking other people's copyrighted stuff. Mm -hmm. If there's no fair use, there's no remix, mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. um, but, and yet the people who do it you know, may not fully understand and appreciate that. So we're all going to get together and talk about it. 
We're going to talk about remix and teaching. We're also going to have, um, so so Steph Carrasso is going to talk about her class. Very good, yeah. Mm-hmm. And several of her students are going to share their final projects, their Very videos. Nice. And then Siva Vajanathan is going to give a talk about remix and copyright. Mm-hmm. And then Jack Hamilton and A.D. Carson are going to talk about remix and sampling in music. Mm-hmm. And you know, whether and how the law might have changed the way music sounds in the last 20 years, which I suspect it has, for the, for the worst in some ways. Hmm. So you're pulling from professors from different departments. and Yeah, we're yeah, try- yeah, awesome. just trying to see what's happening all over campus. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you know, talking about teaching and scholarship and practice, mm-hmm. trying to really cover the waterfront. So we're going to start early, get there at 9 o'clock. But <laughs> will there, will there be, be coffee? There will be coffee. <laughs> okay. And danishes uh, and fruit for those of you who want to eat healthy. So I got you. Amazing. <laughs> uh, before time, yeah, before time gets away from us, I do want to ask, um, in your opinion, how open is UVA? We're working on it. Yeah. We're working on it. Yeah. You know, in some places, openness has been a more explicit part of agendas in different parts of campus. Um, you know, a place like MIT where that's a lot of science, a lot of STEMs. The STEM fields in general have gotten a jump start on mm-hmm. open. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really glad to be talking to my fellow humanists about open mm-hmm. uh, because I think we've got some catching up to do, but I think we'll catch up very quickly because it's the kind of thing that speaks to our values. Yeah. One of the hot topics on campus right now is what to do with our library, which is <laughs> uh, being revamped. Um, mm-hmm. And if you talk to various different stakeholders on campus, they will tell you different things about what the library is for. Mm. Um, it's for research. It's for finding books. It's for I'm an undergrad and I need a space to study. Um, it's for me, the graduate student, to have some silence so I can do work. You know, there are a lot of there are a lot of different stakeholders who make use of the library. Um, in your opinion, um, what is what's the function of the library? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm having a panic attack. That's a big question. What's the function of the library? Yeah. I mean, from a copyright, let me ask. Let me answer that in, in sure. my zone of comfort, right? So from a copyright standpoint, a library is a really magical thing. Um, a library serves a purpose in the copyright system that is almost identical with the stated purpose of copyright. Libraries ensure that that learning and teaching and research can take place um, even when the, the scope of activity you want to engage in is extraordinarily broad-ranging. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, imagine trying to study something uh, without access to a library, without being able to sort of, you know, have everything at your fingertips. Um, scholarship would just screech to a halt. And so libraries solve a kind of market failure problem, right? Markets can't serve scholars in any ordinary way. You can't build your own library for yourself privately. Mm -hmm. And so libraries solve that market failure problem. And in doing so, in a way, they problematize copyright a little bit. That is, they challenge the assumptions of the the market-focused thinking about copyright, the folks who think that Copyright is about forcing people to buy everything that they need to use. And anytime people get something without buying it, then that's a problem for copyright. But of course, libraries have coexisted alongside copyright mm-hmm. for uh, you know a couple centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. the purpose of libraries was to solve that problem that actually that assumption is false. P- 
people need access to information even when they can't afford it. Mm-hmm. And libraries make that information available. So that's what I love about it. That's why I, that's the purpose that I think is at the core. Mm-hmm. You know, whether we are serving that purpose better when most of the books are in an off-site storage, you know, <laughs> whether you need like austere glass-lined caves, I, you know, I don't know. That's a little bit beyond my uh, area of expertise. I, hey, man. <laughs> is that in the plan? Uh, uh-huh. I, I've toured. I toured Yale's new <laughs> library a while back. It was pretty, pretty glassy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because yeah. I think you get into issues of. I mean, most people agree that the library's function is to provide information to people, but you start getting into tangles when people start asserting their need for this information as being greater than someone else's. And if, I mean, yeah. if you went by a sheer number. The number of people who get access to information, I think the undergrads would win, hands down. I mean, they're, they're just, there's so many of them. Um, it's interesting, though. There are so many of them, but they don't use the library as often. You know, grad yeah. students, you know, over and over again, yeah. it's, the, it's, the, it's those grad students that really it's seem to love us the most. Suffering. Yes. <laughs> yes. Brilliant, underpaid, underappreciated. Yes. Uh, the true lifeblood. Um, yeah. Well... <laughs> Well, so if uh, people uh, want to get more involved um, with what's going on for library, especially with um, uh, open access, how might they go about doing that? It's really interesting. We One interesting thing about UVA and open is, in a way, I think we're about to skip a generation um, of open activism. So... The last, the the first generation of open activism was find somebody and hire them to be the open access person mm-hmm. on your campus, and so that person is like the one stop shop and they do all the open stuff. And that person is way overworked and working uphill against a lot of big bad forces. And UVA, I don't think really had that person ever exactly. Mm-hmm. But what they've done instead is they've we've we've assembled a kind of a team of people who all take on parts of the problem. So. If you're interested in learning more about your rights as an author and how to make good choices, uh, I'm probably the right person to talk to. Um, if you're interested in, um, if you if you have something that you know you own and you want to put it in a safe place, we have a repository, Libra, that is open and once you put something in it, it will be safe forever. Um, so you should talk to Libra if you want to put your stuff in a safe, open place. Mm-hmm. If you want to start a new journal, publish an open book, um, uh, change the world in that way. We are launching a library-based publishing service. Oh, wow. And Dave Gamandi, yeah. the open publishing librarian, would be the right person to talk to. Um, I'm very excited about that. That's going to be coming yeah, online really soon. Yeah. It's yeah. a huge that's deal. Huge. So, so those are the three parts that we're taking on, and there's lots of other interesting things mm-hmm. happening. But, you know, come and talk to me, and I'm always happy to direct you in the right place. One last question about uh, open access. What do you think is the biggest myth, myth in the sense that it's not true, about OA in academia? You know, the thing, I, I almost hate to talk about it because it's, it's, it's like, like, any, like some people won't say the president's name. You know, there's some things that you just you don't want to. Give it time and then it, and it then, proliferates. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. All right. But, but I'll say it. Because it's bad, it's annoying enough that I need to shoot it down. It's this the notion of a predatory publishing outfit. Hmm. So there are some journals that are they don't do peer review. They're basically scam journals, mm-hmm. 
And they operate on the same business model as like Nigerian email scams. They send you an email that says, you know, I can give you access, I can give you a journal publication and I'm indexed in all sorts of indexes Mm -hmm. and it will be open access. And it's just fake. Send me your credit card information. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And uh, we will have, we will conduct peer review within three days and you will get a result. (laughs) (laughs) And it's absurd. Yeah. Um, the that's the thing that's the biggest uh, annoying thing about the open access phenomenon right now is that people lump that into open access mm-hmm. they think that this is a symptom of the overall problem of open access as being too new not prestigious enough not mm-hmm. you know not established and it's just false um, these guys are to open access what the what the um, Nigerian email scams are to email they're taking advantage of a v- extremely mm-hmm. vibrant and valuable new thing by and trying to make some money off of it. But don't don't throw out the thing, right? Yeah. Open access is really important, and these predatory uh, journals are just a, a bad set of actors. Dave put it so succinctly when we spoke a couple of weeks ago. He said something about how he's trying to get people to think of not of OA journals as the predatory journals, but as the big subscription journals as the predatory journals, because they're the ones who profit off of universities and the sort of vibrancy that you're talking about. Yes. And it doesn't go back to the universities. It, That's exactly it right. Them, so. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the real predators are the big guys who yeah. are eating our entire budget. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, kind of concluding here, we ask of all of our guests what your current must-read recommendations are <laughs> can be can be fiction can be not good what good are you, what are you up to uh i'll tell you you know what this is great because um <laughs> i have just i have just reformed my ways i have been a very bad reader for many 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 years under the you know i've been pleading you know i don't have time to read for fun because i do so much reading for work yeah, yeah. um mm-hmm. well by God, I'm reading. I'm reading for fun. So I will tell you everything I'm reading for fun right now, and it's a lot. So it'll probably yeah. take me all year to get through it. Uh, I'm finishing up the Neapolitan series. Uh-huh. They're, they're as good as everybody says they are. Right. They're genius. Uh, Melina Ferrante's genius. I don't Even know who she really know is. Who she is yeah. I don't want to know. Yeah, okay. she's some translator. I don't want to know. She's a genius. Um, <laughs> I'm reading uh, The Emperor of All Maladies mm-hmm. about cancer. Mm-hmm. It is really hard to read. Yeah. It's a big book, too. It is a big book. Yeah. I checked it out from the library, and it's probably going to be due back before I finish it, so I'll end up buying <laughs> it. Um, but uh, it's really it's it's hard to read, but it's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I am reading the Michael Wolf Trump book. <laughs> it's so, it's many, so fun. So many questions. It's so fun. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah. Um, I want to know how he's portraying Bannon. Oh, this man. This is some kind of anti-hero. We'll have to talk about this. Yeah. Later. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about okay. it. Um, and and I'm I'm rereading the Communist Manifesto. I don't know. It just felt like a moment when I should do that. Yeah. 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 Been a long time. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. That's really wonderful. Uh, we're so so appreciative to have had you on the show today, Brandon. Um, can our listeners get in touch with you if they have more questions? And if so, how do they do that? Please do. Uh, I am BCB4Y at virginia.edu by email and I'm bc underscore butler on Twitter. Okay. Uh, those are probably the easiest ways to find me. Awesome. Okay, great. We will post both of those on the website. So also thank you to our listeners. For those of you who want more information or would like to subscribe to our podcast channel, please visit our website at www.circulatingspaces.com. 
Yeah. So sleek. Yeah. <laughs> so short, so sleek. Exactly. Uh, and Christian, you've got some exciting things brewing for you for you and the podcast coming up over the summer. Yes, um, I'm actually headed off to Tokyo to attend Harvard's Institute for World Literature this summer. Um, and Sam, I know you attended that last year. I did, I did. Yeah, last year it was in Copenhagen. Um, it's a month-long intensive uh, wash of networking and reading and talking over drinks with really interesting, intelligent people, and you're going to have a great time. Yeah, I am, yeah. I am super psyched. Yeah. Um, so anyway, while I'm there, I'm hoping to record an episode or two. Um, so I'm still working out the details, but hopefully we'll get to hear more about manga, the popular Japanese literary art form. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned for more info on that. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time.